Hey everyone, before the episode gets going today, I just wanted to remind you all about my Patreon. I have a growing list of devoted supporters to whom I am also very devoted because they make it possible for me to be able to continue producing the podcast. I'd like to welcome Addison, my most recent subscriber, and if you'd like to join him and the others who lend their financial support to the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody, where for a monthly or yearly pledge of any amount, you can gain access to all of the bonus episodes that I have thus featured. Sometime I'll go into detail about what all of those are, but I'm so excited about today's episode, so I don't want to waste another moment begging for money. And besides, Claudia is waiting in the wings here, so let's let her lead us into today's episode. Okay? Thanks again. Welcome Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. Hi everyone, welcome to 2022 and to Counter Melody. Wow, that last week of 2021... We lost Desmond Tutu, and then we lost Betty White. Aye. But on the 4th of January, we celebrated two very important birthdays in the opera world. And since that was the beginning of this week, I'm going to pay very brief tribute to each of the celebrants. First of all, the great Grace Bumbry, who turned 85 this year. I have been planning on doing a Grace Bunbury episode for some time, and somehow when I switched to posting the podcasts on Fridays rather than Sundays, I lost a week in December, and the week that I had planned to devote to Grace Bunbury somehow didn't happen. But never fear, I have a little something for you today as a foretaste of a big, belated birthday episode that I am planning in the next few months. I can't go into the extraordinary historical significance of this election I'm going to play for you, but let me just say that it's Grace Bumbry in her first big international success singing the role of Venus in Bayreuth in the summer of 1961. She was only 25 years old. She had never sung any Wagner. I believe it might have even been her first operatic role. Let's just listen to a brief excerpt from that Tannhäuser. This is Venus's seductive call to Tannhäuser, Geliebter, komm. And this is a performance from the 23rd of July, 1961. Wolfgang Savalisch conducts. 
So the Grace Bunbury episode is something to look forward to. Let's look back exactly a year when I had a special episode in honor of the Scottish soprano Margaret Marshall. I just played an excerpt from Margaret, I think it was two weeks ago, in one of my old acquaintance episodes. So instead of playing her for you today, I'm going to pay tribute to her native Scotland with two selections from today's featured singer, with whom she coincidentally shares a surname, Lois Marshall, the first in my series this month on Canadian singers. First is her performance of Loch Lomond from 1959. And here is Lois Marshall reciting the Robert Burns poem, My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung to My love is like a melody that's sweetly played a tree. As fear I fell my body, I say deep in love am I. And I will love thee still, my dear. Till all the seas can dry. Till all the seas can dry, my dear, and the rocks melt with the sun. And I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands of life shall run. And fare thee will, my only love, and fare thee will a while. 
and I will come again, my love, though twelve ten thousand miles. Happy birthday, Margaret Marshall. Happy birthday, Grace Bunbury. Thank you each for your superb voice and artistry. And now let's turn to Lois Marshall. This is a very, very special and distinctive singer, probably unlike any other that you've heard before. Who can go from singing fleet coloratura, like we just heard in that performance of Hark the Echoing Air by Henry Purcell, to Puccini's Turando, to Bach's Jauchzet Gott, to Schubert's Winterreise, each of them marked with her distinctive voice, and artistic personality. I don't know exactly why, but I never paid much attention to Lois Marshall before. I knew her name, of course, but I had no direct experience with her singing. Thank goodness for this YouTube user named Kado Guy, because he has a cache of extraordinarily rare Lois Marshall material, which he has posted prodigiously on YouTube, and for which I am enormously grateful. I'm making use of some of those recordings today, as well as items from my personal collection. I do want to give a little plug to this biography of Lois Marshall called simply Lois Marshall a biography by James Neufeld, or maybe it's Neufeld, I'm not sure. I'm pronouncing it as if it were a German name. It's one of the best singer biographies that I have read. He is a beautiful writer, and even though the book is not all that well indexed, I'm just saying that from my experience as a professional indexer, I would have done a better job. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Nevertheless, he offers enormous insight into the woman and the artist that was Lois Marshall. I'd like to just read a very short excerpt where he describes watching a video of an obscure performance of Lois Marshall singing the Scottish folk song to words by Robert Burns, A Fond Kiss. He writes, Briefly, I am tempted to hear in the plaintive lament echoes 
of Marshall's own unhappy love life, but the face on the screen forbids such facile equating of life with art. Her performance is heartrending, not because it speaks of her experience, but because it speaks to mine. The bond she creates is intimate with self-surrender, the surrender of the listener to the power of a simple song. There is nothing confessional or autobiographical about Lois Marshall's art. She is a throwback to an earlier time, something like an ancient bard, emptying herself to sing for her people the songs they need to hear. There is no singer like her before the public today.
Lois Marshall was born on January 29, 1925, which means that at the end of this month will be the observation, albeit posthumous, of her 97th birthday. She was born into a lower middle class family, the sixth of eight children. When she was a year and a half old, one of her sisters came down with the measles and died. Lois, too, had her share of physical problems. Just two and a half years old, she came down with polio. By no small miracle, she survived, but the treatment was grueling. James Neufeld observes, For the next ten years, the hospital for sick children on Elizabeth Street in Toronto became her second home, and its medical staff her surrogate family. As a result of these extended treatments, the atrophied muscles in her right leg responded to treatment, but alas, her left leg did not. Before she reached the age of 12, Lois had been subjected to six different surgeries to treat her atrophied left leg. She always walked with a limp, but she walked, and it was while she was in the hospital that she first discovered both her singing voice and the powerful effect that music had on her. At the age of eight, she began attending a special school for children with physical disabilities. And it was there that she found her first musical mentor. Through the support of this teacher, she found herself winning a vocal competition for the Toronto Public Schools. And thanks to the intervention of her teacher, the Rotarians took on the cost of her vocal training. All this occurred before Lois turned 15 years old. Her older brother recommended that she study with a member of the Toronto Conservatory's piano faculty, with whom he, her brother, was also studying, but studying voice. The man's name was Weldon Kilburn, and he became... Lois Marshall's teacher, mentor, musical guide, lover, and eventually after the death of his wife in 1968, husband. He was an exacting teacher, but once Lois overcame her initial incredible shyness, she blossomed under his tutelage. She eventually was awarded a scholarship at the conservatory to study singing. But because of her disability, she was not allowed to enter the opera program. Nevertheless, she made a very strong impression and began to receive positive notices in the press for her singing performances. She received excellent guidance from her teachers there, including the head of the conservatory, Ernest Macmillan. He engaged her for her first performances of Bach and Handel, and a few years later Lois would record with him Bach's Cantata 51, Jauchzet Gott in Allen Landen, as well as Messiah and the St. Matthew Passion. Here is a short excerpt from the Jauchzet Gott recording. The Restative Wir beten zu dem Tempel an. This recording was made in 1954, and she was not yet 20 years old. Mm-hmm. 
Bach would be a central composer in Lois Marshall's career. In 1965, she was to become a member of the Bach Aria Group. I did an episode on the Bach Aria Group, oh, probably about 13, 14 months ago, and I did feature Lois Marshall in an excerpt there. And here is a recording that she made in 1972 with the Bach Aria Group in duet with the exceptional oboist Robert Bloom, singing the first aria from Bach's Cantata 32, Liebster Jesu, Mein Verlangen.
Handel, of course, figured prominently in Lois Marshall's repertoire as well. And here is a recording from 1959 again of the aria as when the dove laments her love from Handel's Asus and Galatea. had the vocal equipment to sing the biggest operatic repertoire. Certainly her most famous recording is that of Constanze in Mozart's Die Entführung aus dem Serail, which she recorded under the baton of Sir Thomas Beecham in 1957. At various times in her life she did sing operatic roles, either on television, in concert, or sometimes even on stage. These roles included Queen of the Night, Leonore in Fidelio, Mimi, Tosca, Don Anna, and Ellen Orford in the Canadian television premiere of Peter Grimes. In addition, she would often sing a potpourri of operatic arias on her orchestral concerts, sometimes in positively, dizzyingly difficult juxtapositions of repertoire. She recorded a single album of opera arias, and this gives you some idea of the range of her repertoire. Not only does she sing Purcell and Handel on that record, she sings Mozart, 
Verdi, Casta Diva of Bellini, and this rather stunning performance of In Questa Reggia from Toronto. Aria actually featured in Lois Marshall's audition for the Nomberg Award in 1952. And speaking of challenging, it was a stupefying program of repertoire that she chose for herself to present to the Nomberg judges. And yet the gamble paid off, and Lois Marshall found herself the top prize winner in the 1952 Nomberg competition. From there on, success followed at a precipitous rate. First, she was signed by Arthur Judson at Columbia Artists, and shortly thereafter, she was engaged by none other than Arturo Toscanini for a performance and recording of Beethoven's Missa Solemnis. 
She immediately found herself in very high demand. Not only was she engaged by Thomas Beecham, and by the way, that was in 1956, not 1957, <coughs> but also she began working with the largest orchestras and conductors such as Leopold Stokowski, Eugen Jochum, and many, many others. In addition, she also found herself briefly with a recording contract for EMI alongside the aforementioned recordings of opera arias and folk songs she also did an album of oratorio arias from which we hear this delectable performance of with verger clad from haydn's the creation this recording allows us to hear her absolutely impeccable musical phrasing and at this point in her career the ease with which she approached her upper voice. I am absolutely enchanted by the way that she brings that personal warmth, plangent phrasing, and astute attention to words to the service of this glorious aria. Extraordinary thing about Lois Marshall's voice was the strength of the lower register, which was with her throughout her career, even after her highest notes had abandoned her sometime in the mid-1960s. One of the arias that she frequently sang in concert, and always with such great panache 
and aplomb, as well as technical flourish, was Sestos Aria Parto Parto from Mozart's Clementa di Tito, that was also featured on the 1959 operatic recital album, and here is just a very short excerpt. now belonged not just to Canada, but to the entire world. A very specific door opened to her in 1958, when she was one of the very few Western artists to tour the Soviet Union. Glenn Gould had already made his mark there earlier in the year 1958, and when asked about other Canadian artists who might make as strong an impression with the Russian public as he had, he specifically recommended Lois Marshall. This proved to be a love affair between artist and public, such as is very rarely seen. She went from being a complete unknown when she first appeared in Moscow to really becoming a phenomenon, not just overnight, but between halves of the recital that she presented there. There are so many reasons for this, but one of the primary ones is simply because of the kind of artist that Lois Marshall was. What Lois Marshall had that only the most exceptional singers have is an ability to shape musical phrases in a very instrumental way, and then to use the words to bring that music to vivid life. Though she sang in relatively few complete operas, Lois Marshall definitely had a flair for the dramatic elements in music. And I have heard that nowhere more clearly than in this 1962 performance 
of the Beethoven aria A Perfido. This was a frequently programmed number in her orchestral concerts, and this specific performance took place in Leningrad in 1962. In a way, there is no text more formulaic than the one by Metastasio that Beethoven used for this concert aria. And yet, there is absolutely nothing formulaic about the way that Lois Marshall sings this piece. You know, David and I were listening to this at dinner last night, and I mean, I couldn't even chew my food because I couldn't pick my jaw up off the floor. I have never heard anyone sing this aria this way. And many of my very favorite singers have given incredible performances of this. But Lois Marshall here has the perfect blend of technical facility, extraordinary dramatic sensibility, and again, that beautiful way of making every phrase spring to life through her extraordinary phrasing. I don't have time to play the whole 13-minute piece, so I take a cut in the restative at a rather inopportune moment because in the source material, there was a great big gap of about 15 seconds. So I go from the part in the restative where the singer has a change of heart against that perfidious man to the long cantilena aria that she sings, begging him not to forsake her.
I feel like I'm the one who should be called out here as the perfido for not including the end of the aria, which is even more blazing and exciting than the beautiful portion that we just heard. But look it up on YouTube, friends, because it's there and it's so worth your time. Now back to Lois Marshall and Canada. The world may have embraced Lois Marshall with open arms, and yet she never turned her back on her native country. In fact, the source for her enormous popularity and the esteem in which she was held in Canada stemmed from her concertizing across the entire country and often in the smallest provincial towns. On certain occasions, she would also sing important premieres of works by Canadian composers, which had been written expressly for her. Probably the most important work written for Lois Marshall and premiered by her in 1970 is Oscar Moravetz's From the Diary of Anne Frank. Moravetz chose to set a portion in which Anne talks about a dream that she had about her dear school friend Lise, whom she saw in her dream in a concentration camp. Here is the text of the portion that I'm going to play for you right now. I have not thought about her for months, yes, almost a year. Not completely forgotten her, but still, I had never thought about her like this, until I saw her before me in all her misery, and now she looked at me oh so helplessly, with her pale face and imploring eyes. If only I could help her. Oh God, why should I have all I could wish for, and why should she be seized by such terrible fate? I am not more virtuous than she. She too wanted to do what was right. Why should I be chosen to live, and she probably to die? Of course, we know that, in fact, it was the exact opposite, that the friend known pseudonymously as Lise survived, and it was Anne herself who died.
It wasn't only because of her physical limitations that Lois Marshall became so revered as a recitalist. In fact, it was her ability to connect with the emotional meaning of a text and a musical line that made her such an exceptional recitalist. So it seems only natural that she would have gravitated to that repertoire which represents her at her very, very best. The rest of the program will feature Lois Marshall in a wide range of art song repertoire, including, to start off, some folk song arrangements. We've already heard her at the very top of the episode singing two Scottish folk songs. Here's a British folk song, Flow Gently, Sweet Afton, in a duet arrangement by Welford Russell. Here, Lois Marshall is joined by her colleague, Maureen Forrester. Both women were members of the Bach Aria Group in the 60s, and this led to 
occasional duet performances together. In fact, here they are accompanied in this 1974 live performance by Yehudi Weiner, the composer and pianist who was also associated with the Bach Aria group. Unlike her duet partner here, Lois Marshall never made any gestures toward crossover repertoire. The closest she ever came was in her vivid performances of folk songs. The next folk song I have to offer you is a recording that was made on Lois Marshall's first tour of Russia in 1958. It's the folk song, Oh No, John in which a young woman whose father has gone away to sea has made her promise that she will answer any potential suitor by saying, Oh no, John, no, John. But she encounters a young man with whom there is definite mutual interest, and he craftily manages to reframe his questions so that her no actually means yes. Oh, hark, I hear the 
be tempted to think of Lois Marshall as an old-fashioned singer, and yet there is something so vital, so incandescent about her performances that, yes, she may be old school in a certain way, but in another way, she exhibits an extraordinary vividness that I, for one, would like to be hearing more of from today's singers. Here's a performance that she recorded in 1975 with the harpist Judy Lohman. This was a second album of British folk songs. One of my favorite critiques of Lois Marshall was written by one of my not-favorite critics, Donald Hanahan, for the New York Times in 1968. Lois Marshall could make Frere Jaca sound like a cry from the heart. Everything she sang sounded like a cry from the heart. And here is an example of that very quality in her performance of Benjamin Britten's arrangement of The Last Rose of Summer. This is a traditional Irish tune, and the words are by Thomas Moore. Thank you. 
This next one is a sort of folk song. It's one of Gustav Mahler's incredible settings from that collection of folk poetry known as Des Knaben Wunderhorn. This is a very rare recording from a concert in the Netherlands in 1956. She is accompanied here by the pianist George van Renesse. This is the delectable Reinen Legendchen. Please forgive the less than ideal sound and simply delight in this performance. If I were going into a lot of detail about Lois Marshall's personal life, I might be inclined to portray Weldon Kilburn as the villain of the piece. Certainly from our present-day perspective, his treatment of Lois Marshall seems both creepy and emotionally abusive. There were also many who felt, and according to James Neufeld, Sviatoslav Richter was one of them, that Wilden Kilburn did not match Lois Marshall's superb performances with equally strong pianistic support. And yet it was he who trained Lois Marshall and brought out all of her exceptional qualities, even though he was a bit of a schmuck 
more than a bit of a schmuck, in fact. And even though he wasn't really a very good pianist, a fault which became increasingly apparent over the years, still, he was the conduit through which Lois Marshall developed into a fully formed artist. If in the end she surpassed and even superseded him, still, it must be said that the two of them worked very closely together on all of their interpretations. That I feel that I must at least give him a little bit of credit for his musical sensibilities. We haven't heard Lois yet sing any French repertoire, and she was very good in this repertoire as well. So I'm going to play you the third of the Debussy Chanson du Bilitis, this is a recording from uh, circa 1968, I believe. And the song, of course, is Le Tombeau des Naïades. In it, the heroine describes the end of a relationship, the end of a love affair. I don't know about you, but I think Respighi is an exceptionally fine composer. I enjoy so much of his work, and he wrote a lot of songs. Just, I think it was two weeks ago, we heard Camilla Williams singing that exceptional song from Deita Silvane, one of his song cycles. He also wrote this extended piece for mezzo-soprano and, well, soprano or mezzo-soprano, and string quartet that was a translation of the Shelley poem called The Sunset. 
In translation, it's called Il Tramonto. Shelley wrote this poem in 1816, and it describes two young lovers, let's just say euphemistically, uh, coming together, and he dies mysteriously in the night, leaving her alone with his memory. I'm going to play the end of this 15-minute work for you, which is here performed by Lois Marshall and the Orford String Quartet in a 1971 performance. <laughs> 
I was talking about Lois Marshall's exceptional low range, and though in the mid-60s she did encounter some vocal problems, and maybe this was because of her exceptionally busy touring schedule, maybe it was because of the way that she would program such outrageously difficult combinations of pieces, who knows? But her vocal quality remained intact, even though the high notes started to go. One of the pieces that she always used to program, and with great success, were the arrangements by Manuel de Falla, known as the Siete Canciones Populares Españolas, which are well known to all of us. We don't normally think of singers like Lois Marshall singing this repertoire, but here is a 1969 or thereabouts recording which she made with Weldon Kilburn of the last of those songs, the polo, the one that expresses that agony of love, the agony of pain that is going to tear the singer apart from the inside out. some traditional leader for you. One of the cycles that Lois Marshall performed throughout her career and with great success was the, for us and our contemporary sensibilities, problematic piece Frauenliebe und Leben. But she performed it with such sincerity and such exactitude and such open-heartedness that one cannot help but be extraordinarily moved by her performances. This is a recording that I myself obtained from Russia. It was one of those recordings that she made on one of her tours. Purportedly among her many recordings, this was her very favorite. I have to say, everything really clicks here. This is the sixth song of the cycle, Süßer Freund. Du blickest mich verwundert an, where the woman tells her husband that she is pregnant and that she is going to bear their child. Weißt du, du, 
As Lois Marshall approached the end of her performing career, she did an extraordinary series of leader recitals in Toronto that included the work of Schubert, Schumann, Johannes Brahms, and Hugo Wolf. The Schubert and the Schumann were recorded and released commercially. When I listened to Lois Marshall's performance of Winterreise yesterday, I was completely blown away. I could scarcely breathe. The beautiful low range is exploited so extraordinarily here, and the interpretive depth ranks with the very greatest of the performances of this very greatest of song cycles. I am a big fan of women singing Winterreise. I remember reading a very mean and misogynistic review when Brigitte Fassbender recorded Winterreise, another recording that I very much like. But Lois Marshall's performance is like none other that I have ever heard. Again, it's that combination of exactitude and abandon that completely blew me away. I'm running out of time here, so I'm only going to play one song. The third one, Gefrorene Tränen, Frozen Tears, where the poet marvels that the tears that well up so hot inside of him could be transformed into ice as they run down his cheeks. Anton Querti is the pianist here. Oh, 
Well, my friends, the program is starting to wind down, but I have two more things that I simply must play for you. Lois Marshall boldly programmed Brahms's Vier Ernste Gesänge, his four serious songs based on biblical texts, over the course of her entire career. I consider this daring because these are songs associated only with low voices, either contraltos or basses, sometimes baritones and mezzos, but certainly not sopranos. But this was no ordinary soprano, as we have seen. And she always performed these songs in the original keys, even way back in 1956. And we are going to hear a portion of the final song from a performance at the Concert Rebau, in 1956. Once again, Lois Marshall is accompanied by George van Renesse. The source material is from two different earlier Brahms pieces, so it divides very neatly right in the middle. The text is from 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter. Wir sehen jetzt durch einen Spiegel in einem dunklen Worte. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love.
Thank you for joining me for the first of my series on Canadian singers. In the last years of her life, Lois Marshall took up teaching to a greater extent than she ever had before, particularly on the faculty of the University of Toronto's music department. In Advancing Age, the polio with which she was stricken as a child began to have serious physical repercussions once again. On February 19, 1997, just having turned 72 a few weeks before, Lois Marshall died. She was mourned across the country and around the world for the great artist that she was. I want to end today's episode with a very special performance by Lois Marshall and her fellow Canadian musical genius, Glenn Gould. These two artists were very different. I've been trying to think of a way to compare and contrast these two artists, but let me just say, they're very different artistic personalities, and yet, on this occasion, this CBC telecast from the 15th of October 1962 They are so much on the same wavelength. It's like they're riding on this crest. It's it's a glorious and wondrous thing to hear. This is a performance of the Richard Strauss song Beim Schlafengehen, set to a text by Hermann Hesse, one of that miraculous group of songs now known as the Vier Letzte Lieder, the Four Last Songs. Normally, these are heard in orchestral garb, but I think Glenn Gould makes a pretty fabulous orchestra, don't you? Wie ein Mühle 
Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs>